The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We are looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the message is, in this passage, is our blessed hope. Uh, Blessed means happy. It's the hope that we have because of God's promises that make us happy. And it's the promise about the future, what we have to look forward to. What are we waiting on? What are we anticipating as we look forward? That's what, that's what this blessed hope is all about. It's found in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4, let me read this, verses 13 through 18. You remember, if you remember what happened when Paul got ran out of town, he came into Thessalonica, preached the gospel, and the synagogue and a bunch of Jewish people and Gentiles came to faith in Christ and a church formed. The great majority of the people in that, in that synagogue. But that made the Jewish people very angry and they drove him out of town and then they drove him out of the second town, Berea, and he went down into Athens. And so he was a long ways away uh, from these people who had just freshly come to faith in Christ and he was very, very concerned about them. You know how that is when you lead someone to Christ and then you don't see them in a while, you're wondering, how are they doing? How is the Lord working in their life? What's really been going on? And that's how he was. And so he sends Timothy all the way back to these people, a long walk of many days to get back to them and get a report about how things are going. And when he comes back to Paul, he brings a report. And the report was mostly good. There was a couple of things. One thing that, that he discovered was, that some of them were confused because they thought that Jesus was coming before anybody died. And someone in that group of new believers died. And so they were upset about it, and they began to grieve as those who have no hope because they thought Paul was wrong about what he had told them. And so this section begins, and Paul is trying to encourage them and straighten this out so they understand what's going on. This is found in beginning in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed. That is, that you don't know the truth. You don't understand what the truth is. Brethren, about those who are asleep. He calls them asleep because they, he knows they're going to be raised from the dead. They're dead, but they're going to be raised from the dead. What the Bible teaches is when a believer dies, They immediately go into the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, we are told in 2 Corinthians. This is is what happens. We are never going to be apart from Christ. And if we die, we'll be in his very presence and see him. But we still have not got our new body until this event that he's talking about here. And so he says, "What what concerns me is you are grieving as those who have no hope. What is that all about? Grieving when there's no, when, as people who have no hope. Well, hope is actually, it's defined for us by Paul in, in Philippians chapter 1, and he calls it an earnest expectation. It isn't wishing something were true, it is expecting the future to open up exactly as God has promised. And he says, You are acting as though you don't have any hope. And now, if you don't have hope, it's because you either don't know the promises of God or you don't believe the promises of God. God has made many promises. There are promises he has not made. And sometimes people believe promises that God never made, and then they're, they're dashed when they discover that God didn't make that promise. But what he has promised is this, 
is that every single person who comes to, who turns to Christ in faith will be saved and their future is set. They are saved and they're going to see Christ. When they pass out of this life, they are going to immediately be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And not only that, Jesus is coming back. Now, we don't know when he's coming back. Um, th there have been several groups who have set dates for when Jesus was coming back. And you've all heard about people who got caught up in one of those kind of movements where they believe that uh, what these, people, these teachers taught. There's been some books out. One of them was called 1988, and it was telling us that Jesus was coming in 1988. And then there was one after that, and after that, and after that, and before that. And there's always been somebody telling us when Jesus was coming. And he never comes when they say. And so what Paul wants them to understand is that Jesus is coming, but here is how we are to view it. Here's how we are to understand it. So he says, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. That is, unbelievers who have no hope about resurrection. When you go to a funeral, I remember going to a funeral once that was actually predominantly Hell's Angels, and this friend of mine was, was, was giving the message, and he was preaching the gospel, and one of these Hell's Angels threatened him and says, if you don't shut up about this, you're going to pay for it. But he kept on talking about it. He kept on telling them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there was a way for you to be sure about what happens at death. There's a way for you to be sure about what's going to happen after death. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And so he says this in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now I hope you understand why he's saying fallen asleep. He's saying they've died but they're going to be resurrected. And so it's temporary. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, this is what God has told us through his word, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And understand what he's saying. He says, those of us who don't die are not going to precede those who have died. When Jesus comes back, the first thing that's going to happen is, notice this is the order of events, he says this in verse 16, notice he says, For the Lord himself, that is Jesus Christ, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. That is a voice of authority. You know how it is when somebody takes authority, when a group is all together and there's no, no organization and we're going in every direction. And finally somebody says, hey, let me have your attention. And they begin to tell you what to do. And you're grateful for it because, in most of the time, because they, they know what you ought to do. Well, when Jesus comes, he's going to give us instruction. He's going to tell us exactly what's going on. And so he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What's going to happen first? The dead in Christ will rise first. What he means by that, those who have believed on Christ have now died, but they're going to be raised first. That's, going to, that's the first event. All the people who have trusted in Christ are going to be raised from the dead. And then you have all these other ones. And perhaps when, when Jesus comes back, since it's been 2,000 years, probably there are many, many more people who have died than who are alive at the coming of Christ because it's been so long. And so he says what's going to happen first is all those who are dead in Christ will be raised from the dead. They will be alive. That's going to scare you to death, isn't it? They're all going to be alive, and they're going to be with us. 
And so they're not, we are not going to precede them. It's not like because we're alive when Jesus comes. See, I assume Jesus is going to come in our lifetime, my lifetime. That's not very much time left. But uh, that's what I assume. I assume he's coming while we are alive. But I, I think every generation of Christians have believed that. And certainly these Christians did. That's why they were confused. Why hasn't Jesus come? Now there's some people in our group who have died and Jesus hasn't come yet. And some of them were grieving as those who have no hope, as though they forgot. Wait a minute. We have a hope. Every time we have a funeral of a believer, we need to understand that we have great hope. And that hope is this person has died, but they're going to be made alive. They're going to be raised from the dead. And I hate to tell you this, but they're going to be a whole lot better than they are now. They're going to be in the image of Jesus Christ in character. Amazing. And so he says that the Lord himself will descend and, and all this. And then he says in verse 17, then we who are alive, this is the second event that goes along with the resurrection of those who have died. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him. This is the word rapture that you probably have heard about. The Bible doesn't, if you notice in this translation, it doesn't use the word rapture. That doesn't mean the Bible doesn't teach the rapture. The word caught up, harpazo, means to catch up by force. You know how it is. Some people, they're always telling you, hey, you know, you invite them. Hey, why don't you come over to our get-together? We'd love to have you come with us. And they hem-haw around, and they make you think that maybe they will come, and then they don't come. It ain't going to be like that in this. He is going to catch us up. Even the stubborn ones are going to be caught up together with all the saints, and they'll be with the Lord in the air. There's going to be a meeting with the Lord in the air. What's really amazing about this to me is that this expression in the air is referring to the atmosphere around the earth. And it's really the air is, was understood to be the air below the, the highest mountaintops where you could breathe without any, any kind of help. And yet that is the place that Satan calls his domain. He is the prince of the power of the air. Same word. This is what he believes he owns. And yet Jesus is going to gather all of his people in his neighborhood. We're all going to be gathered right there in the place that he calls his own. And then it says this, we're going to meet him in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You understand what he's saying? He's saying we should comfort each other with these words because death is not going to be the one that wins the battle. We have put our faith in Christ, and he has promised us not only eternal life, which means a certain kind of life that we can understand God, we can have a relationship with God. But he says that we are going to have new life. We're going to be raised from the dead. And we're going to be raised from the dead in a way that we have the same image as Jesus Christ in his character and his nature. Now, we were told back in Ephesians chapter 2, we went through there, verse 12, it says, when God found us, we had no hope and we were without God in this world. You remember when you were in that condition? When you were without hope and without God in this fallen world? And yet he brought you into relationship with him. And one of the things he has promised you is that you're never going to die. You're never going to, you're always, you're, you may die physically, but you'll be raised from the dead and be in his presence for all eternity. In, in what happens among the unbelievers who don't have this hope of resurrection, they grieve as those who have no hope. 
Now, what does he mean by grieving? Well, that's what you do when you're not, you don't have what you think is absolutely necessary for you to have, be happy. You know, I couldn't live without my wife. And uh, now I started to say she couldn't live without me, but she probably did fine. But I, I don't think I could live without her. And so it would be a grief to me if I thought I was going to spend eternity without her. But since she came to faith in Christ at about six years old, and I've known her all of our married life as a sister in Christ, I have absolute confidence that we're going to spend eternity together. I know what the Bible says about how when we're in heaven, there's not going to be marriage. Well, I'm like Gary Darnell. I disagree. He told me he didn't agree with that because he was going to be married to his wife for all eternity. And I kind of feel like that too. But uh, those who have no hope are described for us in Scripture all the time. In fact, there's a passage in Amos chapter 5. He talks about when, when people within the, the, the promised land who don't have faith in God, when, they, when people die, they, they are miserable because they have no hope. And this is how he describes it. They will, they will be, there will be crying in all the public squares and mourning in every street. Call for the farmers to weep over you and to summons professional mourners. You probably never heard of professional mourners. They actually paid people to come and mourn for the dead to encourage the family. There will be wailing in every vineyard, he says. That's, that's what it would be like. Now, this was the common understanding of the philosophers, uh, the Greek and Roman philosophers. Let me quote a couple of them. Theocritus said, Hope, hopes are among the living. The dead are without hope. In other words, there's no hope for the dead. And so when you lose a person to death and you wonder, how am I going to get through this? Well, the way we get through it as believers is we know there is a blessed hope. We know that Christ is going to raise the dead and he's going to reunite us in a wonderful way. Callus said, uh, suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. That was their, that was their mindset. But for the believer, and this began to permeate, I don't know, you, you, if you've read history, you know that in the Roman Empire, uh, in the Roman Empire was where Christianity was born, and they were a persecuted people. They were hated by the Roman leaders. And yet, in 300 AD, it became a Christian empire. Now, that didn't mean that everybody in the empire was saved. It just meant that the leadership believed that this was, especially Constantine believed that this was the very best thing that could happen, is that the empire would become Christian. Now, that wasn't all good. That became something that had some real downsides to it. But what happened was they realized that this was the most important thing that could happen to them, a culture that was influenced and impressed with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What would it be like to have neighbors who believe in the resurrection, who believe that Jesus Christ is the king and that he has promised to fulfill every promise that he has made to us? You know, the Bible says, you all know, Matthew 6, 33, it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
In other words, if you seek Christ's righteousness and his kingdom, that God will provide for you everything you need for life and godliness. It's a wonderful, wonderful reality. And so the, the Roman Empire became a Christian empire. That's why, that's why the Roman Catholic Church became the, the Holy Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Empire became the Holy Roman Empire. Now, there were bad things about it, no doubt about it. But it just shows you the power of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It permeates the hearts of people. In the, the, among the uh, Roman philosophers, there's Lucretius who said, no one awakes and rises who has been overtaken by the, the chilling end of life. How many funerals have you gone to and sat and listened and thought, I, I forget who it was, I think it was R.C. Sproul, he said, the most popular view of justification. And justification is the d biblical doctrine that when you put faith in Christ, the Father con uh, declares you to be righteous with him, right with him. And so that you, because you're right with God, you're right with everything. But uh, R.C. Sproul said, the most popular view of justification, being declared righteous, is death. And here's what he meant. As soon as somebody dies, everybody believes they're righteous. That doesn't happen that way. Righteousness comes through Christ. And becoming righteous comes through putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, he prepares you for death. And he prepares you for life. In fact, he gives you eternal life, we're told in John 17, 3, that he gave us eternal life so we could know God. Now, that doesn't mean just to know about God. I, I have a little book that I use in a class on the doctrine of God at the seminary. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer said, the reason I, I titled this book Knowing God is I didn't want it to mean knowing about God. I wanted people to come to know God. Now, you have to come to know things about him before you can know him. But knowing God is the most important thing in all of life because it prepares you for life and godliness, for eternity. You'll be with his people and in his presence. And so we have this blessed hope, and this blessed hope is based upon the promises of Jesus Christ. He has promised that he wouldn't leave us or forsake us, that he would come. And this promise that I'm reading to you in 1 Thessalonians 4, he comes and he wakes us up. He raises the dead and, he, and he's going to bring all of those of us who are still alive into the very presence of God and present us to the Father based upon his work. That's how good the work of Jesus Christ is. It is so good. It is so perfect that it can save you from your sins. It can bring you forgiveness and reconciliation to the living God. It, it is the basis of salvation. And salvation is a big word, but it has to do with the fact that I am made right with God and I am delivered from everything about me that has alienated me from him. The problem is described for us there in verse 13, and it is that they, they were confused. They were wondering, why hadn't Jesus come yet? Because now some people have died and they've missed out on this glorious event of the coming of Christ. And so Paul wants to straighten that out. And he gives them the solution there in verse 14 when he says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. They're not going to miss out. 
The dead will not miss out on these glorious events of our reunion with Jesus Christ. And then the explanation is given to us through verses 15 through 17. The solution that is given to us in verse 14 is important too. He says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died and rose again. And you say, well, that's the whole gospel? That's the very heart of the gospel. Jesus died for us and he rose again. He's alive and you can know him. And he says that this is what we believe. This is what we have put our trust in. We've put our trust in a savior who died and rose again. And for every person who comes to him in faith. And faith means trust. It means when you come to trust him. Now the testimony of God is he is able to save you. He is able to bring reconciliation and forgiveness and renewal and restoration. And if you believe God's testimony about his son, then you will put your trust in him. You'll put your whole trust in him. I told you last week about that picture on the news where the, the people were in a fire in the second story and they had a little baby and a little two-year-old. And so they were communicating with the people down on the ground and they concluded the best thing they could do was to drop the baby into the arms of one of these men that they had never met or talked to before. And then the little two-year-old to the same man. And so when she reached out the window with that baby and dropped him and he fell right into that man's arms and then that little two-year-old, I thought, what an incredible picture of saving faith. Except that instead of somebody dropping you into the arms of Jesus, you have to rest your hope in Jesus. You have to put your trust in Jesus. And, and I can tell you, you can examine him and examine him and examine him in the Word of God. The Bible is, we're told by Jesus Christ that the Bible is the Word of God, that we can trust it, that it tells us the truth about ourselves, about sin, about salvation, about eternity. And so we can trust the Bible. And that's why we have statements like, and the reason we can trust it because of Jesus, because we trust his testimony about the Bible. And so we're, we have statements like Second uh, Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, which means God produced it. He created it. He spoke it into existence. So we have a Bible that is the very, it has the very nature of God on it. He's the one who's given it to us. And he says it's profitable for teaching and reproof, which means the Bible will tell you when you're wrong. You wouldn't want to marry a person like that, would you? But the Bible is the very word of God, so it tells us the truth. For all scriptures, God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, telling us when we're wrong, and for correction, setting us right. You know how it is when you're, you're, something's wrong in your life and somebody tells you, but you don't know what to do about it. What the Bible does, it not only tells you when you're wrong, it tells you what to do about it. It tells you how to get right with God. And, and this is what we need to know. And so we have, a, we have God's testimony in a book. This is the amazing thing. It's in this little book. This is really a little book. This is the whole Bible, 66 books bound together in one book. And this is the Word of God. And it's called the Word of God by Jesus and by the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. That's the reason we know it's the Word of God. And so when Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, we have confidence in that. This book can penetrate your heart. In other words, it can tell you the truth about yourself. Now, sometimes I don't like that, but I always need it. 
always need it. I had one of those occasions this past week where a truth from the Word of God came to sink so deep in my heart, and I realized how desperately I needed God to do a work in me. And it gave me confidence that he could and he would if I simply listen to his word and respond as it tells me to respond to him. Well, in, the next, in this next section, the explanation, this is what it says. Let me read this to you. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, he says, he calls it the word of the Lord because it's a word who's come to us through the word, through the Lord, rather, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I know I've already read that to you, but I want to read it to you again because this is, this is the explanation. This is how we're going to be delivered. How are we going to be delivered? By Jesus Christ. We're going to be delivered by Jesus Christ. He's going to deliver us from death. He's already saved you and re- reconciled you to God if you've believed in him and you became a child of God, and you begin to experience what it was like to live in fellowship with the true and living God. And now he says he's going to save you from death. If you die before Jesus comes back, he's going to save you from that death. Jesus is. There's a lot of things about computers I love and some of I hate. I hate making mistakes. I make so many mistakes. Can you remember a password? I got this program that remembers all my passwords, and I just put my fingerprint on it, and it enters, but sometimes it doesn't work. And I've been in so many jams, and because I didn't know what I was doing. And, and everything I did made it worse. Does a Christian life ever seem like that to you? That it seems like, I just don't know what to do. How many of you have seen Bob Newhart's uh, YouTube video about counseling. Have you ever seen that? Oh, I've got two honest people in the whole room. Well, what happens is he, he, demonstrate his, he demonstrates a method of counseling, and this is what he does. He brings a woman in, and she has a problem. He says, now, I need to explain something to you. I don't charge more than $5. I charge $1 a minute. And so if you want my counseling, you'll have to pay me in advance because we don't take checks or credit cards. And so she listens to him. She tells him, well, I have this fear, this incredible fear that I'm going to be buried alive. And he says, you have a fear that you're going to be buried alive? Wow, that must be awful. It is. And then he says, okay, you ready for the counseling? Yes. He says, stop it. <laughs> she says, what? He said, stop it. And she goes, I don't understand. He says, I can't believe this. I tell you the simplest thing, and you can't, you can't understand what I'm saying. Stop it. Stop being fearful that you're going to be buried alive. And he goes through this whole thing. Now, sometimes people think that's what biblical counseling is. It, all it does is tell you, well, you need to stop that. That's sinful. Stop, stop thinking like that. Well, God does a lot more than that because he has sent his son to minister to us. And all you got to do is read the New Testament. If you read the New Testament, you discover what Jesus is really like. It tells you all kinds of stories in there. It's the story of Jesus, and it tells you how he treats people, how he relates to people, how he cares about people, and how people are drawn to him because he actually loves them and knows exactly what they need. And you know that's true in the Christian life. 
I don't know what I'm doing, but he knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing, and we can trust him. And so this is what we, we want to do, is we want to believe these instructions that he has given us. Now, he tells us that what's going to happen when we are taken out of here in the rapture, that's a term that a lot of people don't like, but that's, that's exactly what it says. It says we're going to be raptured, we're going to be caught up and brought into the presence of Christ in a meeting in the air. There's going to be a meeting in the air. You know why I know that? I, I love that truth. You know why? Because I sing songs about it. There's going to be a meeting in the air in the sweet, sweet by and by. And oh, I want to see him over there and at home beyond the sky. I remember singing that when I was five years old. And so why I, I believed it was just true. So when I heard these first things saying, there's no such thing as a rapture. I opened the Bible, looked at it, and I said, well, what do you do with this? See, the word harpazo isn't the word rapture. It's Harpazo is a Greek word. What happened was when the Bible was translated into, into Latin, the Latin Vulgate, it was translated raptura because that was the Latin word for rapture or the Latin word for being caught up. But when you look at it, you can see exactly what he's saying is you don't have to fear. You don't have to grieve as those who have no hope because you're going to be caught up and you're going to meet Jesus in the air. I love that. I love two things about it. I didn't have to sign up for the free re webinar. I didn't have to do anything to get in on that. I just had to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says, this is what I'm going to do. When it's time, I'm going to descend, and I'm going to raise the dead, and then I'm going to catch you and all the, and maybe I'll be dead, but he'll, he'll raise me up and would catch us all up into a meeting in the air. A meeting in the air. Don't you love that expression? There's going to be a meeting in the air. We're going to be with Christ and his people. And he's going to bring us into his very presence. And so we're going to be caught up. Now, there are those who have tried to say that that's not, this is, a, you're misunderstanding this. The word uh, to meet him in the air is a word that was used when they brought dignitaries to a town for the first time. And so this in the city, and so the city, they would go out, the population would go out, meet the dignitary, and then walk him back into town. And so they say, that's not you being caught up into the air. It's talking about the second coming of Christ when he comes. And it's going to be, this is, this is what's called um, amillennialism, which I, don't, I have some really good friends who are amillennialists, and I, I really care about them, and I, we can talk about this, and I don't get angry, and they don't get angry. We just enjoy it. And I tell them what I believe, and they, they chuckle. I believe that Jesus coming back before the millennium, and the millennium is going to be right here on this earth, so we're pre-millennial, that Jesus is going to return before the millennium is set up on this earth. The millennium just means the thousand-year reign of Christ over his people on the earth. And then ultimately, the Bible te teaches that we are going to be brought back. If I were to go back and read to you Revelation, the last chapter in Revelation, what's the last chapter in Revelation? 20 what? 22. There, good. I'm, I'm impressed. 20, chapter 22. Pardon me? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so the, the whole church, the, the kingdom of God is going to come back to the earth. And we're going to live on a restored earth. After all, God created this earth for his people. Why would we move out of a perfectly good earth when it's restored and renewed by the Lord Jesus Christ? 
We're going to live here. This is going to be the center of our activity. It's going to be wonderful. Now, some people believe, I had a, a seminary prof who believed that um, we're going to be able to move at the speed of thought. I said, I know somebody like that right now. You know how it is. Some people, they're just ready to move today, tomorrow, the next day, all the time, ready to move. Maybe we are going to be able to move at the speed of thought. You know, maybe I'm going to think, boy, that'd be beautiful over there, and who is some right there? I, I don't think there's going to be any moving vans, though. I don't think we're going to have to do any packing or anything like that. Because I, that's what I think of heaven. It, it just, they has, that has to be eliminated, right? And, and, uh, but we're going to be in this wonderful, wonderful place with the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's going to take place at the right time. When we finally see everything, you know the problem with eschatology? That's a big word for the doctrine of last things. You know what the big problem with it is? There's too many facts. There are just too many different parts of the puzzle. And so everybody you talk to has a slightly different part. There are premillennialists, postmillennialists, amillennialists, and on and on and on. Everybody has a different view. There's pre-wrath rapture, post-pre-rapture. Uh, uh, I mean, pre-tribulation uh, rapture, post-tribulation rapture. There's all kinds of things. There's post-toasties, everything. And, uh, but the fact is, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, and he's going to be perfectly satisfied with his working out this plan. But what we know for sure is we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. That's how you're going to make this entrance into his presence. You're going to be with him. And you've already been equipped. You may not know it, but you've already been equipped to have a relationship with him in person when you see him because you were born again. I'm talking to all of you who put your faith in Christ. You've been born again, and you've been given the Holy Spirit to live in you. The Bible's really clear about this. I grew up in a church that taught you didn't have the Holy Spirit until you had some second blessing. But then I found out in the Bible, it says that all believers have the Holy Spirit, and Romans in the book of Romans, it says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to him. So all of you have the Holy Spirit, and this is what you need, the person, this third person of the Trinity, to live in you in order for you to enjoy his presence. Have you ever got caught in a situation where somebody invited you over, and you were there at their house? We do this every week, invite a bunch of people over, and I feel like some of them are feeling like this. But you get there, and then you think, man, why did we decide to do this? This is, this is so... I'm just at ill at ease here. I'd like to get out of here. And you're trying to think of some excuse to leave. You're not going to be that way in his presence. You're going to be perfectly content to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And this is what he's called us to. Called us to. Now we have a responsibility, and it's found there in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, the responsibility is this, therefore, therefore, this is what you're to do. Comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Why is that necessary? Because grieving people need comfort. Comfort is when you come alongside someone and say, I need to, I need to let you know you're worried about something you shouldn't even worry about. You can rest assured of this. This is what God has promised. What will bring real comfort? Hope. And let, me, let me tell you something. Hope is our earnest expectation that God will fulfill his promises. Now, the only problem is this. You need to know what the promises are, and you need to believe that the promises are true in order for you to have hope. Hope is an earnest expectation of God's promises to us. It's not 
wishing. It's not hoping in the sense of, man, I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but I sure hope so. You know that is, and I, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm hoping that I'm going to get a new Corvette for my birthday. But I'm not really sure. That's not hope in the Bible. In the Bible, the hope is based on the promises of God. Do you know his promises? I just read you some of his promises right here. This is what's going to happen when he catches us up to enter into his presence. That's a blessed hope. And the word blessed means happy, and so it's a hope that makes you happy. A hope that will fill your heart with happiness is the hope that Jesus is coming back, and he is going to bring us into his very presence. I'm supposed to go with a guy to a, 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 a conference, and I, I'm going to go, but it's, but it's one of those things I have these, these, uh, these feelings. I was like, you know, I don't really want to go. I don't want to go and sit in those sessions. I would rather just skip it. So I'm kind of thinking, okay, how could I do this? Because I've already basically committed to go. Maybe there's a way I could just sneak out of this and he wouldn't even notice. He wouldn't even think it was something bad. You know, maybe uh, we need to take our dog to the vet. The only problem is I don't have a dog, but I could borrow one of my daughter's three dogs. Uh, What am I going to do? Well, the wonderful thing is, is there's going to be a meeting in there that we're all called to that you're going to thoroughly and completely enjoy. And you're, you're thinking, okay, what am I going to wear? It don't matter. It doesn't matter. He might catch you out of the bathtub. I don't know. But you're going to be there right in his presence, perfectly dressed, perfectly presented by Jesus Christ. And that's what his promise is. That's the reason we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope. We can rejoice because Jesus is coming. I don't know. I don't know when he's coming. I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's this year, next year, or another five hundred years. I'm not sure. But I know he's coming, and he's going to come at the appropriate time. You're all going to say, "Wow, what perfect timing!" Jesus came at just the right time. But what it does, it motivates me to think. You know, I would love to share the gospel with a thousand people this year, in private conversation. I would love to be able to talk to people, at least a thousand people this year, to tell them about the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. That Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for you to bring, for him to bring you into his family and reconcile you to the Father and save you and put away your sins and give you eternal life and give you a life that's really worth living. That's what he's called us to do, and he's given us this glorious gift that we can share Christ. The basic basic issue of living the Christian life is just, are you willing to give yourself away? That's really what it is. And you say, where'd you come up with that? Well, you ever hear of Jesus? You know what he did? What did he do? Well, he came from glory, and he entered into uh, Mary's womb, and was born in a little animal shelter so that he could reach us, all kinds of people, including us who have put our faith in him. And so he tells us, now I want you to go and do the same thing. Give yourself away. Give your heart away. Tell the people the truth about this glorious, glorious gospel that we have received. Tell them what it means to be saved. You know, you have so much ammunition. You have so much of the gospel. There's just, there's just 
you couldn't fill it in a notebook. There's so much truth in the word of God about the gospel. Wonderful stories about people coming to faith in Christ and coming to know Christ and walk with him and live for him. And so we have this glorious future ahead. I don't have to fear. I don't have to live in, an, in fearful anticipation of everything going bad. Sometimes I act like it. I'm only, I'm only being honest with you. Sometimes I think, man, that is so inconsistent with the gospel, isn't it? Grieving as those who have no hope. See, if you grieve as those who have no hope, you're not walking in line with the gospel. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ tells you that when a person simply rests their faith, their confidence, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will receive eternal life. And no one will ever be able to snatch them out of his hand. They'll be secure. Isn't that wonderful security? That's real security. It's security that settles your heart and your mind that you know he has got you and he's going to deliver you to the Father as one who has been perfectly changed. A lot of times we come up with these plans of how I want to be transformed. I'm reading a book right now that got somebody left at my office. Maybe that's a hint, but it was about soul transformation. And it's all about, about what needs to happen in order for you to be transformed. And it's some good stuff. But I also know this. Jesus Christ is the only one who can change you. You can't change yourself. You couldn't come up with a plan that would transform you into the person that you should be and you want to be. God has to do that. So he has to actually want to do that, doesn't he? Well, I got good news, I want to tell you. The good news is he wants to change you. And he's committed to it. He's going to conform you into the image of Christ. And you're going to have the heart of Christ. You're going to love people. And you say, I don't think I could do that. That's one thing I don't think I could do. Oh, yeah, you will. If you hang around Jesus, you will begin to love people. You'll, you'll begin to love people that you ordinarily would think I couldn't ever, ever care about a person like that. Well, isn't it wonderful that he cared about you and about me? Some months back, we had a guy come and share. If you remember, his name was Kevin. He's from Valley Bible Church. And he gave, his, he gave his testimony and talked to us about the gospel and so forth. What happened to him was he, was, he, was, uh, he said he toured California in the prison system because he went to prison and they kept transferring him in different places. And he was all over California and he had, he had done some really hard crimes. But his brother began to pray for him. His brother wanted to see him saved, so he began to pray for him, and, he, and he, he, he actually recruited a guy to pray with him for his brother, a fellow believer. And so they would meet on a regular basis and pray for his salvation. And what happened was God answered their prayer. They saved. He was saved. He came to faith in Christ. And when he got out of prison, somebody told him about this church over in Hercules, and he went there. And he got to know them, and he told them about his testimony, so they wanted to baptize him. His, his brother had died, and he knew he'd never see his brother again. So he's there, and they're going to baptize him. And as they have him up front, and he gave his testimony, and this guy walks in the church that nobody knew. And so this guy listens to what's going on, and he walks up, and he says, I need to say something. I'm sorry to dis disrupt this. He says... I've been praying for this guy for 10 years. I knew his brother, and we used to meet and pray for him. And I had no idea he had ever become a Christian. 
And here he was ready to be baptized in the name of Christ. See, that's how that's how God is, isn't it? He's able, he's able to save us to the uttermost. He's able to forgive us and to bring us into the family and make us exactly what he wants to make of us and use us for his glory and for our pleasure. That's what he wants to do with us. I want to encourage you and admonish you. He's blessed you so richly. He's given you the gospel. And uh, if it's a little rusty to you, just start reading it. Start with 1 Corinthians 15. Just start reading it. Get it in your heart so that you can talk to others about it. Isn't it, isn't it incredible how we can talk about things that are important to us to people? Like being, your fear of being buried alive? <laughs> isn't it something we can talk about all kinds of things? The most important thing in our life is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And you are all bearers of that. You're, you're carriers of the gospel. So just let God use you. Let me give thanks. Our Father, thank you for this wonderful group of Christians. I thank you for the experience of living in fellowship with this community. We are so grateful as we begin to, as we come to the table now and take communion. We do it as a group. We do it as a community of faith. We thank you that we are one with each other, that you've made us one body in Christ, and that we have relationships with each other that are closer than anything we've ever experienced. We're so grateful for that. So use this time of communion to draw our hearts together, that we may offer ourselves to you, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.